0: I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. We're in the middle of this year's Old Books with Grace Lent series called A Book That Changed Me. This series offers four different conversations with guests on a book of their choice that changed them, (laughs) obviously, that made them think deeply about transformation that brought them closer to truth. Books can be mirrors. They can help us to consider ourselves in a new light. Books can invite us into conversation and reflection we would have not known to participate in without their guidance. Each of the guests in this series has chosen a book that invited them into reflection, remembrance, and self-knowledge. Each conversation is quite different. Some are more personal, others less. And the books span from the Middle Ages to the 1960s. If you're inspired, I'd love to hear about a book that changed you on social media, Find me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at GraceHammondPhD. My second guest of the series is Dr. Jason Baxter, who has chosen to discuss Dante's Descent into Hell, The Inferno. Jason Baxter is a college professor, speaker, and author of five books, including A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Comedy and, most recently, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. He now lives in South Bend where he's teaching great books at Notre Dame. Welcome, Dr. Baxter. I'm so glad you're here to talk Dante with me. Thanks. So I ask everyone who comes on the show to get to know you questions the first is what is your favorite book or author from more than fifty years ago, and why?
1: Yes, I was. Yeah, I was just thinking that the the difficult thing for me, I think, would be the other way around. Um, considering what the my favorite book within the last fifty years is, and that would stump me too. <laughs> I mean, I know Lewis said that you're supposed to have a balanced diet. Uh, he says for every uh, for every one new book you read, you should read an old one. Um, But again, I think I'm sort of the other way around. I have to be reminded to go read new books uh, in addition to old ones. But um, I think uh, I love the comedy, obviously. I love Homer's Odyssey. As a young man, I used to enjoy the Iliad, but now the Odyssey has replaced uh, the Iliad in my affections.
0: Mm, why, Why is that, do you think?
1: Well, in antiquity, the legend was that Homer wrote the Iliad. As a young man, and he wrote the Odyssey as an old man. So mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Um, I think uh, I think I like the figure of Achilles, but um, I think the I think the sort of sustained longing of Odysseus. Oh, maybe the, maybe it's this way. Achilles is the is a character who desires infinity and never achieves it, mm-hmm. whereas Odysseus desires uh, the eternal, but as embodied in a particular place in Ithaca. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that shows, uh, growth in character, <laughs> but, <laughs> but very much right now I have on my mind, um, uh, Dante, um, Dostoevsky's, maybe Freudian slip there, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that might currently be my favorite book. It's, it's certainly on my, uh, on my mind the, the most these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Why is that? What about that has captured you
1: particularly? Well, I mean, on the, and, and the most banal level, I'm writing about it, and so I'm thinking about it a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm. I'm I've, I've just been so I've been so fascinated with Dostoevsky, who's an incredibly incredibly modern character. Mm. His biographer Joseph Frank says that he's one of the few people from his age who seems like one of our contemporaries. Mm. And I think he reads something like The Gambler. Uh, Dostoevsky's The Gambler, and you see that he understood what it's like. To have an adrenaline rush, to be us, right? To, in some sense, to to feel this this excitement, the speed, the forces of physics, and the pulses in the veins. And so he gets us. But then Dostoevsky has these incredible moments where he does really old fashioned things. I mean, we're talking like sixth century Isaac the Syrian <laughs> kind of <laughs> things. And and Alyosha has visions of what the tradition would call theoria Physica, or a natural contemplation. Uh, in which the world sort of goes transparent, and he sees the essence of things. Mm. So I think that's what I'm so excited about right now is that is sort of seeing how Dostoevsky works through this very interesting idea to to plagiarize a line from uh, from Faulkner, right? That the past is not you know is not even past. It's not you know the past is still rev- relevant. In fact, it isn't even past. It's just sort of sleeping beneath the surface forgotten as i guess Eliot would say by the worshippers of the machine i think mm-hmm. is that it's that aspect of the sort of the iconic world even in dostoevsky is still there but it's just beneath the surface and forgotten
0: yeah i um that makes me want to return to dostoevsky it's been a long time since i've read him and i had <laughs> my my experience reading the brothers karamasa for the first time was um I was, it was over the summer I was in college and I read a ton of it, um, in the pool, which is a hilarious juxtaposition of this, the seriousness of Russian literature while I'm like floating in the backyard in my parents' pool. pool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, I, I would love to return to it. Um, that's a great reminder. Um, okay. So then the second question, which literary character do you most identify with and why?
1: That's a hard one. I'm just going to throw out a bunch of them. And I think they're, they're kind of interesting. I think they might be kind of contradictory characters. Um, but maybe when I was younger, Holden Caulfield, but at different points of my life, I thought more like Prospero, who might be the exact opposite. Um,
0: or at the Ooh, same explain time... Explain that. That's interesting. What? How do you see that working?
1: Um, I think I think... Well, I jokingly say sometimes that Holden Caulfield is the is an epic hero born into a world without meaning. Hmm. And uh, and his kind of peculiar power of soul is the ability to detect whether or not you were a phony, <laughs> whether or not you were <laughs> a tool.
0: Which is the gift of many a teenager.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I guess I'd hope that Holden Caulfield was more than a, a regular teenager. Maybe he, he is, though. Um, I, I, I was on the elevator the other day with someone and he he had a t-shirt on which said, Holden Caulfield thinks that you're a phony. (laughs) That was pretty good. But I think, I, I, I mean, I think, uh, in some sense, I don't know, this is what I like to play around with this idea that does he have a, does he have a great soul? I mean, would his soul actually be oriented toward greatness if he had been in a different type of world? I mean, if he had lived in the in the, the, the world of the song, the song of Roland or, I don't know, heck, Dante's comedy, is this what a saint would look like? This kind of like sacred restlessness that's just di- discontent with all the petty. But in some sense, it's not Holden's fault, being born into a world of uh, sort of materialistic assumptions. And so that if he can point out that this, his re- if his sacred restlessness can point out that this is no good, then that means there's nothing left but despair. So I, I always kind of admired him as a kind mm-hmm. of a heroic character, but kind of an antihero in the, in the in the age of modernity. But in the meantime, someone like Prospero, um, who's in tune with this sacred cosmos of of antiquity, um, I I love Ulysses uh, and Dante's Ulysses in Inferno twenty six, which I think we're going to talk about. Um, and I admire Alyosha, but I don't feel very much like him. I feel more like Yvonne. In fact, I was talking to my brother the other day and I said, who do you feel like you're most like of the brothers? And he said, Dimitri. And he said, how about you? I said, I'm afraid it's Yvonne, even though I wish it were Alyosha. But
0: have you ever met somebody who feels truly like Alyosha though? I mean, I do believe they exist, but that's such a unusual and rare person who has that that gift of seeing the thin through, the, you know, below the thin surface, as you were saying. I don't know. I that I think I would be really shocked if I met somebody who said I identify most with Alyosha because <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I wish I did.
1: Probably <laughs> in that conversation in a hurry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think. I think his sort of his unique power is the a, a gift of faith
0: mm-hmm.
1: without trying to engineer his emotions to get to the right results. Yes. And I think in sort of like contemporary American religious culture and particularly, particularly American Christianity, we all know like what a Christian, you know, ought to look like. And I think we sort of feel the pressure to generate those, uh, those enthusiastic responses in order for Christianity to look good. So Mm -hmm. we're like a bunch of, (laughs) we're a bunch of like marketers and influencers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have to like, you know, keep on this, like, I don't know, this, this face to sort of present it as something which others would find attractive. But I think it creates a lot of, a lot of falsity. Um, so yeah.
0: Um, and there's your Holden Caulfield coming out.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. My my Holden Caulfield in in critique of, uh, of Alyosha. So I don't think so. I don't think I have ever met everyone, but I guess maybe that's the miracle is that although yes, you've never met anyone like him, you know, that he could exist.
0: Yes, I agree. Which is sort of the miracle of Dostoevsky in general, right? Is that you read it and you go, it's both real and unreal. Like you're like, oh, this is all at such a high intensity that it doesn't, but at the same time it rings really true Um, to put it very, very vaguely and broadly, but um, well, cool. So I, for this Lent series, um, I've had some conversations with different folks, and I've asked each of you to pick a book that has changed or transformed you um, as this podcast thinks about turning and conversion and change or transformation, all these different sort of concepts that are a part of Lent. And you chose Dante's Inferno. But before we get into that, I'd love to set it in its context a little bit. Um, Inferno is one of three books in what is now called The Divine Comedy, written by Dante. And most folks know his name, or only his first name, perhaps, <laughs> but um, little else about him. But you've actually written a book on The Divine Comedy, and um, so I was wondering if before we get into The Inferno, if you could give us a short bio on Dante and um, think a little bit with me about who he was, when he lived, what his concerns were.
1: Yeah, well, he comes from an aristocratic family, which seems to have kind of run out of money. <laughs> um, and so he's able to do some of the things that an aristocrat was expected to do. Um, for example, in his 20s, he is a lyric poet. He's a love lyric poet. He's sort of participating in this in this genre, which I think maybe has, has a kind of a social cachet and prestige to it, maybe like being a singer-songwriter does in in our era and he's, he's very successful and very popular in his own little time. In fact, he says at one point that he could hear people singing his own songs um, through his window.
0: Oh, interesting. I've never heard that little uh, tale before. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, he, he does the sorts of things participating in this very strange genre um, of courtly love genre, which is sort of born in the courtly culture of France and then translated into into medieval Italian, even though the social setting is different there. But nevertheless, they take some of the conventions. And so so they sort of use this, what has already become a kind of traditional genre. And Dante, I don't know, maybe like, the Seeger Roche of the, uh, you know, of medieval Italy, takes this kind of like genre, something analogous to, you know, to rock music and stretches it and pushes it and pulls it until it actually starts to become this type of, I don't know, a tool for spiritual um, inspiration or for spiritual exploration. And he seems to have known that by his experimentation, he was beginning to get somewhere. So he gathers up all of his own poems in his late twenties and writes this thing called the new life. La Vita Nuova, in which he tries to give this coherent narrative scheme to um, to what to why he's been producing poetry, and what is sort of you know iconically just on the other side of these impulses toward love and the sort of sensation of beauty that he's been seeking out. And he writes this he writes this thing you know this autobiographical Vita Nuova, and he concludes that he's going to take some time off. And he's going to study. And if the Lord grants him life and health, he's going to write the greatest poem that's ever been written about any woman. And we don't know exactly what this thing was. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was gonna be something like he'd been doing, a so-called canzone, one of these 100 to 150 line poems, just a single thing. Maybe it was gonna be like the greatest rock song in the universe, right? (laughs) And then, then he would end his career successfully. But then, for whatever reason, the next time we hear about him, he's gotten involved in politics, which is, I guess, what you're supposed to do as a young aristocratic man. He's involved in politics, and he gets involved in one of these kind of nasty, divisive political uh, debates. And his side... It loses and is exiled and Dante receives word at, he's, he's acting as a political ambassador to Rome. He receives word on road on the road from Rome to Florence that he's been exiled from Florence forever. and if he returns into Florence, he will be legally executed. And so for Dante then this, he spends the rest of his life in exile and I, he seems to have been like a really uh, really passionate. Uh, individual easy you know a choleric easy to anger
0: mm-hmm. and
1: seemingly he sort of joins together with other political exiles and tries to form this political this political group maybe even an army which was going to force its way back into Florence and seemingly he gets sick of all the people that he's joined with um, and as he says later in the comedy I became a party unto myself In other words, I quit divisive, um, party politics of both varieties. And it's right around this time that he returns to his poetry, the poetry that he may, you know, the poetry, he had ambitious designs in his late twenties and now in his mid thirties, he returns to his poetry and he starts writing the comedy, but he's not writing a love poem anymore. Um, in fact, he's He's not, even, he's not even writing these sort of individual kind of, what I'm jokingly calling sort of you know, individual rock songs, these canzoni, mm-hmm. these hundred line poems, but rather he's stringing together these little, these little um, individual chapters, these little kind of like songs, individual songs, these canti, as he calls them, into a larger thing of a hundred songs, but it tells a narrative. So seemingly somehow, way in exile, being deprived of all those things that he had loved the most, his city, his family, his friends, his property, his his welfare, right? He's, he's sort of forced to do something, forced to make vernacular poetry, that is poetry in Italian, do something which had previously only been attempted by Latin poets.
0: And in this way, um, for those of you who are Anglophiles, he's a forerunner to folks like Geoffrey Chaucer, who are inspired by, Dante's project of taking up the vernacular language, doing poetry outside of, um, outside of Latin and the more um, university style um, discourses. So huge influence, even outside of the content of the comedy, which of course is marvelous. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there are you know, there's a possibility that uh, Geoffrey Chaucer was in Florence. Listening to Boccaccio uh lecture about Dante <laughs> yeah. when he was and in Italy.
0: Chaucer loved Boccaccio. I mean that is everywhere in Chaucer. Um, and yeah, that's kind of wild to think about. I wish I wish we could have a little window into that. Um so Inferno is one of the three books in the comedy, and um it famously covers Dante's journey through hell. Why did you pick Inferno? What, what was the, and I know that's a big question, but um, you, uh, you went with Inferno over Purgatorio, over Paradiso. Um, and uh, tell us more about your why, what is it about Inferno that is the book that changes you?
1: Yeah, I think Inferno or Purgatorio would both be good Lenten readings and you could hold off in Paradiso for Eastertide. That's right. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think, I think both, both are good. Um, I don't know. I, I'm increasingly beginning to suspect that there's a lot of really interesting monastic theology just underneath the surface of Inferno. Hmm. Um, I think there certainly is in Purgatorio, but that is, I mean, I think it would be a little bit of a scholarly, scholarly chore to, to prove how this is the case. But I mean, the, the monastic tradition like stemming from the desert fathers talk about that a fundamental, a fundamental feature of prayer is tears.
0: Hmm.
1: And Evagrius says that if you pray and do not experience tears, then remember how you should always be in God and how far away you are, and that will surely provoke them. Hmm. And so I think I think you know, maybe Inferno in a way is is like this huge example of dramatic irony of people that we can see, who are very far away from God and who have been allowed so perfectly to possess their own freedom, mm-hmm. independently of God, that they don't even recognize how the very breaths that they breathe and the very heartbeats that they have and the very words that they speak are being sustained by the creator. And they don't see that, but we see the irony. We see that, you know, we see that, you know, they're, they're speaking in verse, they're speaking in Dante's verse, but they don't know it. Um, And they love their individual things and they love them so exclusively and so fiercely that it actually, it actually makes what could be, a worthy love seem uh, repulsive and despicable. So, yeah, I think I mean Dante's Dante's Inferno is this kind of like this kind of rock hammer. I think for 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 going at these this stony heart for these kinds of these kinds of attachments, right? In which you know, I'd rather. <laughs> I mean, Evagrius, I'm gonna I'm just gonna paraphrase a little bit, but Evagrius more or less says that the Desert Father. That if you're actually praying, and if someone showed up with you and said, "Hey, you just won the lottery for forty million dollars," you wouldn't even care. <laughs> yes, because you already have that, you already have in your possession that for which the the heart longs most faithfully. but I mean who would who who would actually do that, right? Who would actually of course, I mean, eventually we want to be good, right? Eventually we want God, but it's the sort of thing that you know most of us are willing to postpone. Forever, essentially. <laughs> and for <laughs> Dante, these, these are the people who postponed it <laughs> eternally. Um, and then, so such that in hell, they've lost the capacity to even change their, change their decisions. So I think, I think in that way, um, Dante's Inferno is a lot more kind of like psychologically intelligent, psychologically mm-hmm. driven than maybe we were told when we were in high school. And we were told that you know here's this medieval book about torture and you know and how the Dark ages and I mean just you know insert cliche here. but I, I think that I think that Dante's Dante's Inferno is this kind of brilliant description of psychological of psychological subtlety, analogous to a lot of the the monastic reflection on um, to borrow a line from John Berryman how how strange. Is the heart? The heart is strange.
0: Mm. Yes, I think that's really true. I think the temptation of of reading um, something like the Inferno is to just be caught in the various torture devices, or or almost the um, the gossipy side of us. Like, what did they do to, to to get here? Like, what? Why were they so bad? You know. But really, the the treasures that Dante offers in the Inferno is, is that the treasure is that it's a mirror, right? It's that it's this mirror of what happens in hearts when they, uh, when they cling, and then you, your whole narrative gets shaped around what you are holding on to really tightly. Yeah, that's right. Um, You
1: sort of build your life out Around your love.
0: Mm -hmm. And And, and it's an example of storytelling out of that, which we all do, I think, right? We all have our narratives that we tell about ourselves based off of our values and what we find most valuable. And in Dante, he's like taking things to their logical extreme end.
1: Right. Yeah. And so that these characters are disturbing to everyone except themselves.
0: Yes, and even I know that when I read it often times it's and in it, you know, Dante himself is learning how to listen and how to discern as he goes through the Inferno. So the way he's receiving these stories changes and we are sort of meant to follow that path as well. The way we receive the stories is also supposed to change, right? Um, yeah, I,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I try to make that argument in my book that one of the fascinating things about the Inferno is how complicated the response to sin and damnation and hell ultimately needs to be. And that for Virgil, it's, Virgil is this kind of, you know, this classical figure for whom it's obvious Right, it, things are things are very rational for Virgil. Yes, and Virgil believes that every human being possesses possesses enough rationality to make good decisions, and so bad decisions should be forcefully condemned and mocked. <laughs> and so Virgil keeps telling Dante, "You're having too much pity for these people. They don't actually deserve pity. They had all the resources they needed to succeed, and now they just want to blame everyone else." stop pitying them or you'll never get out of here. (laughs) And I, I honestly think that that's at least in Dante's imagination, even if it kind of bugs us, that's at least one component of the truth for Dante Mm -hmm. that you have to, Dante has this sort of, you know, um, full contact hit that you say it with me. Now, this is my fault. (laughs) Repeat after me. This is my fault. Own your freedom. Say that you have failed, right? And so I think there's like the, the hugely important element in Dante, but I don't think we would be reading it if that were if that were it. Yes, I think there are other sort of Christian elements which dear old Virgil can't even understand. There are there are aspects of sort of of there is a kind of strange pity, there is a sort of strange piety, there is a str- sort of strange compassion, and it reminds me of the psalm in which we're told that. Justice and mercy embrace. Justice mm. and mercy kiss. That, in some sense, the the Christian response to the world has to be has to be paradoxically excellent in multiple ways. That is, you have to bring a heart of justice and a heart of mercy simultaneously. And I think that's in part why why the Inferno is so interesting.
0: Yes, and I I think that's a great reminder, too, because for medieval folks like Dante and, and like his contemporaries, this was a, an extremely pressing concern for them. In modernity, we don't tend to think that much about um, Judgment Day, um, whatever that looks like. Um, but in the medieval church, um, there were wall paintings in every church portraying. Um, Christ showing his wounds on Judgment Day, and medieval folks trying to grapple with what does it look like to have justice and mercy rolled up into one perfect figure. Um, and and that you're, I think that uh, the way that you're saying that that in in Virgil, we're seeing only just one piece of this much bigger, much more complicated puzzle. Um, and otherwise, Inferno really would just be about. the gawking at the tortures, right? And being like, well, that's what happened. <laughs> but that's actually yeah. not our
1: response as we read. Well, there, are, yeah, I mean, you, if you want to, if your listeners want to, to read that sort of thing, there are lots of medieval treatises that are just that. <laughs> yes, um, there
0: are. And, and they're not very of... fun to read. Like, let's be real. They're really, they're uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. but Or but,
1: rather, it provokes exclusively what you were sort of talking about, like, oh my gosh, right? Um, I, I talk about some of those in, in, in my book, but yeah, but I I think that's, I mean, my, my analogy is that before Dante, everyone was playing in a single, a single key, you know, and within one octave, say, I don't know, like C major, but only within that octave. But Dante sort of realizes the complicated nature of the moral demands of the Christian and these pieties not only to this classical world but also to this this christian world so to a yes to a world of rationality and yes to a world of justice and yes to a world of the cardinal virtues but also yes to a, a world of mercy and yes to a world of thinking that probably that probably is me right there i just haven't got around to doing it mm. <laughs> yet Um, And yes, sort of the the kind of sustaining power of grace, which is, you know, part of the part of part of an acceptance of faith. Anyway, so if you take your one octave keyboard in one key, and then all of a sudden add all the other possible notes that could be played on the piano, all the other octaves, as well as all the other keys, and then demand that in some sense, the moral composition of our lives be informed with that type of complicated response and you have something of an analogy of Dante moving from the typical medieval treatments of judgment in his day to this thing called the Inferno which for good reason we still read.
0: Yes, and I think so I had I I would like to talk to you about cantos 1 and 2 but this um conversation moves us really naturally into talking about canto 26 so i want to move there i think and then maybe return to 1 and 2 but yeah um i think that so in in 26 we um we are in the circle of the inferno where those who counselled evil or led others towards evil Um, eternally dwell and Dante meets Ulysses here who is also of course known as Odysseus in other legends Um, and you picked this stanza this uh, canto as one that is particularly important to you and um, I think it it definitely relates to what we were just talking about with the complications of judgment as as we read and um, why did why does this canto uh, stand out for you.
1: Yes. Well, if you do this, if you do this experiment with college students that you just say, Hey, I want to read you a speech and you don't tell them who it is and where he lives, then all this college students get, you know, let's go She's completely, <laughs> you know, completely jazzed by Ulysses. I mean, Ulysses seems like the most virtuous self-controlled, disciplined um, figure that you've ever encountered.
0: Wait, let's pause for a second. Can I read part of the speech for us so that um, for those of us who don't have Just don't tell anyone where where it comes from. (laughs) Listen to this speech. Oh, brothers, I said, oh, and by the way, I'm reading from the Hollander verse translation. Oh, brothers, I said, who in the course of a hundred thousand perils at last have reached the West to such brief, Wakefulness of our senses as remains to us. Do not deny yourselves the chance to know, following the sun, the world where no one lives. Consider how your souls were sown. You were not made to live like brutes or beasts, but to pursue virtue and knowledge.
1: Yeah, why spend your whole life in that small, dinky town where? you would just, you know, get your nice little job and get your nice little suburban house, right? Don't you want more? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you restless? Don't you desire great, to know greater things? I mean, so, I mean, who wouldn't be? And so, I, so the wonderful problem comes, it's such a, this is like the easiest college class to teach. You just have to say that and then just say, so, did Dante make a mistake? Maybe he shouldn't be here, Right. Or if he isn't, how, why is he here? And, um, but why is he so attractive simultaneously? That's such a wonderfully kind of, you know, difficult thing. And I think that, that this is a great illustration of what we were just talking about, of the kind of complicated moral responses that Dante demands of his readers. It's not at all obvious that Ulysses is not the most interesting character in the comedy. <laughs>
0: No, And in fact, people as august as Alfred Lord Tennyson um, would write uh, poems about this very moment that were very odulatory. Um, And so if you're hearing it going, well, that sounds pretty great to me, you're definitely not alone.
1: Yeah, so so in general, I mean, you could say that the past, I don't know, 150, 200 years of scholarly criticism, this is a little bit of a simplification, but it's kind of Italians versus Anglophones. So Australians and English critics and American critics on one side and Italian critics on the other side. It goes a little something like this. The the Anglophone critics, they're kind of, you know, Scotch, Angli- English, Puritanical backgrounds. Just point out that, of course, Ulysses would speak this way. He is among the false counselors, after all. He's performing on you and on Dante the very type of witchcraft trickery which got him into the situation in the first place <laughs> so they sort of sit there and you know cross their arms and look at Ulysses icily cold just wait for him to stop talking right and just you no know, you're not going to seduce me with your your you know your suave words the Italians surprise surprise I feel like they they're much more they're much more lenient with with Ulysses and I always sort of jokingly say that for the Italians this is like the you know the 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 beautiful film director even in his late late, late 60s you know smoking his cigarette you know giving his tell all narrative about how he was just misunderstood but he still had these kind of artistic designs and um and and hopes and ambitions and you find yourself sympathizing with this guy and so i think the great sort of task is trying to sort through this anglophone versus this italian uh, approach to ulysses my own approach is um, borrows from one of the texts that we know that Dante knew cold, Boethius's Consolation, mm-hmm. and in the most boring part of Boethius's Consolation, in Book Five, <laughs> Boethius starts doing these this like severely difficult and dialectical stuff, in which he starts to say that the powers of the human soul are hierarchical. The lowest powers, we have this sort of sense faculty. And then we, the stage up from there, we have this imaginative faculty in which we can recall those things which are no longer in our presence. And then we have this faculty called reason, where we can discern deep patterns of objects around us and categorize them into things. And for most of us, we just sort of stop there. But then Boethius, almost kind of half in a whisper, says, Oh, yeah, there's this thing called intelligentsia. It's the type of faculty which is directed toward realities which are true, but can't be known by reason such as God. There are realities which exist, but the intellect, he says, has to reach out beyond language to touch these things, which can't be spoken. So my read is the Anglophones and the Italians are correct simultaneously, but for a really interesting reason. That is, that is, Ulysses has what I'd like to call a kind of mystical orientation in his life. He really does want to know that which is on the other side of the world, that which is hidden beyond the veil, the deep stuff, the real stuff. And he feels what the ancients would, what Plato would call this the sense of eros, this pull toward the ultimate good and the ultimate beautiful. And so, in some sense, his very daring, bold quest with his men. I think is motivated to the correct end. And yet Ulysses is also the guy, I also like to say, who worked for Blackwater his whole life. You know, one of these sort of maybe I shouldn't one of these sorts of like military firms that, you know like it teaches people how to get what they want by craft mm-hmm. right i mean this is he's the
0: designer of the trojan horse right he's and the craft guy. is intimately associated with him right like he's crafty yes. and he's he known for his craft in yes. his language and his craft in his trickery and that's an essential part of who he is
1: especially in virgil virgil hates him <laughs> um, i mean homer makes him kind of lovable but virgil makes him you know um repellent Mm-hmm. anyway so here's this guy right here here's the consultant that you finally bring in despite his reputation when you actually need to get the job done right and if you're kind of turn a blind eye to you know how he goes about achieving the 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 thing that you desire he'll get you the office he'll get you your victory he'll get you your corporate merger just don't ask too many questions right? That's Ulysses. So here's this guy, I think, with a sort of like legitimate sort of mystical desire, and yet he's practiced his whole life at using words which are which are deceptive. And so my read is that Ulysses has this kind of great opportunity to go to the edge of his own language to reach out beyond to this thing, but he doesn't use the highest form of the intellect. He spent his whole life seducing people with words, and thus he becomes seduced and tricked. And he tries to explain to himself his own desires and the ultimate end of divine beauty by means of the ordinary language of his craft. And thus, the craftiest man in the world ends up fooling himself, thinking that the deepest secrets of the universe, the black hole of meaning at the center of the cosmos, can be explained in ordinary human language. And that's when we meet him in in Inferno 26, it's like, it's like, like a proper Italian, like smoking for all of eternity, right? Like, I don't know what I did. I don't know what happened. I really wanted, I, I, I wasn't given the, I wasn't given the spiritual resources to know all the names of theology, but I had an orientation. I don't know what happened. And I think I love how sort of understated Dante is, but that that's my read is that if he had employed this faculty of intelligentsia, this Boethian faculty, as he says, at the apex of the mind, that he might have been able to touch it. But you can't use that faculty unless you've spent your whole life preparing to use it by means of ordinary sort of path of ethics and being committed to people and being disciplined in your language. Thus, it's the the tragedia di Ulysses, the tragedy of Ulysses.
0: You know, two things come to mind as I am hearing you uh, talk about Ulysses, and I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the two things are that basically Dante's interested in how Ulysses lacks a, a sort of humility, a sort of intellectual humility um, about what can be reached and what cannot be reached. And then the other that what that leads me to is that Ulysses becomes almost like a, in my mind, like a version of Augustine in Confessions, except an Augustine who never goes beyond book seven, basically. <laughs> like an Augustine yeah, who is reaching out to the be to the world beyond, who's becoming aware. Of of something bigger than his rhetorical flourishes, but um, and his own massive intellect and massive gifting, but who hasn't yet realized that it's not to be found um, through his labor and effort is does that is that does that sound similar? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I call him uh, Ulysses, the failed mystic. Um, but I think you could substitute Augustine for mystic Ulysses, the failed Augustine. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, I mean, there's this great moment at Ostia in which as Augustine describes this conversation that he had with his mother right before she died, they were talk. they began to talk about the saints and then they began to talk about the saints lives and they began to talk about the saints holiness and they sort of ascended higher and higher. And they talked about, well, what is that thing which makes them delight They talked about delight itself, and they sort of get higher and higher and higher, he says, until they were both sort of left in wordless, stupefied perception of the source of happiness itself. And they stayed sort of, you know, gazing at that intellectually, Augustine says, with this incredible thing. He says, with the eye of the soul, the eye of the soul, whatever that is. And then they fell back down to the Mm. clamor of their own words. Mm. When you have that type of moment, everything that you could possibly articulate afterwards seems like empty clatter. So poor old, poor old Ulysses in, uh, in, in our reading, I think, is um, uses the, the clatter of his own tongue and has done that for so long that he's allowed himself to be fooled into thinking that that sufficiently articulates the object of divine beauty which which in, in reality eludes mere language mm. so, so you got a mystic in hell
0: you do, which I is so mistake. interesting, yeah. um, yeah. and it's hard for us too as as readers, I think sometimes at this point, because we go to, but does he really deserve to be in hell for that? I think this is a, a, something in in um Dante that is interesting for us, especially when reading the pagans um in Hell, where it, it but that's not um I don't know that's almost not a question for us. It's more of looking. When I read Dante, at least, and I know other people read it differently, but I'm, it's about these processes that we see in these people that are reflected back to us. Um, But it's a challenging book that way.
1: Well, there's this funny, there's this funny story told in the Purgatorio um, about how um, Gregory prayed Trajan out of hell. Trajan being, you know, a pagan emperor who had gone to hell. And Gregory prayed him out of hell and he was given basically his body back for a day. And then he repented and he um and then he was able to go to heaven. I feel like I feel like you could say this, and this might assuage some of your um listeners or readers' frustrations. That I think the 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 tragedy is that if if Ulysses got his body back, he would repeat the same thing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but he would just do it better this time, quote unquote but end up making the exact same mistake. And thus the people in hell are in this kind of tragic repetition of their same fundamental dispositions. Yes.
0: And we see that with other really famous passages like um, the passage of Francesca and Paolo um, or um, some of those other really well-known sinners in the Inferno. That's right. Um, So, we are uh winding down on time but I did want to ask you what um so you chose this because it had changed you or transformed you and how how have you changed since studying Dante and reading the Inferno what what has that been like
1: I think That especially in Inferno, what I admire most about this poem is how Dante refuses to allow head knowledge to exist independently of a deep—I'll call it haptic knowledge—a deep sort of sense of the truth in in your bones and in your fingertips and in your pulse. That in some, the ancients thought that if you could think of sin and not be sickened by it, or if you could think of heaven and not have your heart warmed by it, you probably actually didn't believe in those realities.
0: We're back to Evagrius's tears, aren't we?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess we are. Yeah. And so I guess, and, and I guess we're also back to where we began this conversation regarding the vernacular. I think Dante chose the vernacular, chose the Italian precisely because he was afraid of people walking around with sort of mental buckets of correct opinions Hmm. and thinking that was somehow Christianity. That if I do these things and I think these things, then I'm a Christian. But the reality is it's much more incarnational than that. These things actually have to be, well, just like the Lord, though the word getting into flesh, these things have to get into your desires and your pulses So that you long for them, so that you're shaped by them, and I think for I think for Dante, I think there's somehow, way some huge sort of play on words that just as just as the word himself became incarnate in the flesh, that the poet who deals with words takes the word and tries to make it incarnate in our minds and our hearts, but I just keep saying this in our bodies, and thus the poet. It's like an extension of the very, of an imaginative extension of the very active incarnation, a micro incarnation, of course, but in which we stop thinking that we know Christ because we know stuff about him Mm -hmm. unless we've been conformed to him. And I think that's why he strives so hard to use this type of language, which, which stabs and pierces and burns and punctuates with, um, you know, with fire so that we're not left walking around like logical possessors of logical syllogisms.
0: Mm. That speaks to me because I think that humans have always been tempted to confuse knowledge with wisdom, which I know is a little different than what you're saying, but I think that today Dante is a good guide for us in that sense because never before have things been so accessible to us, have ideas been so accessible, Um, have the correct opinions been so loudly articulated. Um, And Dante is sort of an antidote in that gut punch of questioning, exploring of the power of narrative in thinking about things. Nothing is straightforward in this. Nothing is like, as it first appears, you have to wrestle um, in order to, uh, and to sort of begin to see your own limitations as a reader <laughs> in order to get down to the bottom of reading something like Inferno or Purgatorial or Paradiso. Agreed. So, um, if folks are interested in finding out more about your work and what you're up to, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, um, I have a website, um, jasonmbaxter.com, jasonmbaxter.com. And I have uh, links to some of my popular writing, as well as links to my my books. Um, I even have a little online bookstore where if people want to buy from me, I'll sign a copy and mail it to you. And um, for some reason, my readers have been just in love with this idea. I just, I, I grab random lecture notes or printouts that I've been using in class of random lyric poems or scholarly articles that I've been reading. I just grab those things and wrap up my books in that. And so my readers always get really, really thrilled about this. I guess it's not as, uh, uh, it's not as sterilized as a, as an Amazon delivery. It's, you know, like some, some very particular individual human being, you know, sat down there and did this. So anyway, yeah. So Jason and Baxter.com is where, is where people could find out more.
0: Great. Thank you so much for sharing your love of Dante with us and um, giving us some of your interpretations. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Grace. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. If you're interested in finding out more what I'm up to as a medievalist, you can check out my Substack newsletter, which comes out once a month at gracehammon.substack.com. In two weeks, the Lent series will return with Caitlin Schess on A Wrinkle in Time.